Hello, everybody. Got your walking shoes on? Let's power walk the Bible. This is episode 12, and today we reach a milestone in our 20-episode power walk of the Bible, our last day in the Old Testament. We will be looking at the last of the minor prophets and focusing on our God of justice we will see that this is the perfect theme for us to close the Old Testament with as God's justifying work is actually the glue that connects the entire Bible. Now, in our next episode, we will begin the New Testament with the glorious story of Jesus. And I'm thinking this may be a part of the Bible that you are more familiar with. And If you want to do some reading before our next episode, read the first 20 chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. Now, let's pray together as we get started. Almighty God, my Heavenly Father, make me an instrument of your salvation for these precious people that you have brought to me through this podcast, that through my life and teaching, I may set forth your true and living word. All these things we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, as always, we talk about all of the scriptures that we're covering today, but we also focus a bit on a particular passage. Now, today, our special passage actually consists of excerpts from several of the prophets that we'll be studying today. Each of these passages gives some insight into God's justice. And once again, we're reading from the modern translation, The Message. And The Message is written in language that we can relate to. So you actually may hear some accusations that don't seem too far from what is happening today, right under our noses. First, From the prophet Micah. Doom to those who plot evil, who go to bed dreaming up crimes. As soon as it's morning, they're off, full of energy, doing what they've planned. They bully the neighbor and his family, see people only for what they can get out of them. God has had enough. He says, I have some plans of my own, And there'll be no one to stand up for you and no one to speak for you before God and his jury. The leaders of Jacob and the leaders of Israel are leaders contemptuous of justice who twist and distort right living. Judges sell verdicts to the highest bidder. Priests mass market their teaching. Prophets preach for high fees all the while posturing and pretending dependence on God. We've got God on our side. He'll protect us from disaster. Now from Habakkuk. The problem as God gave Habakkuk to see it. God, how long do I have to cry out for help before you listen? How many times do I have to yell, help, murder, police, before you come to the rescue? Why do you force me to look at evil, stare trouble in the face day after day? Anarchy and violence break out, quarrels and fights all over the place. 
Law and order fall to pieces. <laughs> Justice is a joke. The wicked have the righteous hamstrung and stand justice on its head. What's God going to say to my questions? I'm braced for the worst. I'll climb to the lookout tower and scan the horizon. I'll wait to see what God says, how he'll answer my complaint. And then God answered. Write this. Write what you see. Write it out in big block letters so that it can be read on the run. This vision message is a witness pointing to what's coming. It aches for the coming. It can hardly wait. And it doesn't lie. If it seems slow in coming, wait. It's on its way. It will come right on time. And from Zephaniah, on judgment day, I'll search through every closet and alley in Jerusalem. I'll find and punish those who are sitting it out fat and lazy, amusing themselves and taking it easy, who think, huh, God doesn't do anything good or bad. He isn't involved, so neither are we. So get yourselves together, shape up. You're a nation without a clue about what it wants. Do it before you're blown away like leaves in a windstorm. Before God's judgment anger sweeps down on you. Before God's judgment day wrath descends with full force. Seek God, all you quietly disciplined people who live by God's justice. Seek God's right ways. Seek a quiet and disciplined life. Perhaps you'll be hidden on the day of God's anger. Next, from Zechariah. There's nothing new to say on the subject. Treat one another justly. Love your neighbors. Be compassionate with each other. Don't take advantage of Widows, orphans, visitors, and the poor don't plot and scheme against one another. That's evil. And finally, from Malachi. Count on it. The day is coming, raging like a forest fire. All the arrogant people who do evil things will be burned up like stove wood, burned to a crisp. Nothing left but scorched earth and ash, a black day. But for you, sunrise, the sun of righteousness will dawn on those who honor my name, healing radiating from its wings. Remember and keep the revelation I gave through my servant Moses, the revelation I commanded at Horeb for all Israel, all the rules and procedures for right living. But also look ahead. I'm sending Elijah the prophet to clear the way for the big day of God, the decisive judgment day.
Today, I want to begin by introducing you to a concept that has really been guiding our study the entire time, but I've saved it until now as we come to the end of the Old Testament and prepare to jump into the New Testament in our next episode. Some of you may have heard of Max Lucado. He actually pastors a church not too far from us in San Antonio. And he's also a prolific author of Bible studies and devotional books. Well, now a few years ago, he collaborated with another author to create a version of the Bible called The Story. Now, it's the Bible written as more of a novel, and it's similar to my book in that way. But what makes it unique is that it describes the Bible narrative from two perspectives, the upper story and the lower story. Now, the lower story of the Bible is what we see happening here on earth and how we interpret those events with our very limited human perspective. The upper story, on the other hand, is what is really happening from God's cosmic divine perspective. Now, a great example of this is the book of Ruth, which we studied a few episodes ago. The lower story, the human perspective, is that a daughter-in-law was faithful to her mother-in-law and ultimately was rewarded with a wonderful husband, Boaz, and a child named Obed. That's a good story. But the upper story, God's story, is much more profound than this little hallmark family drama. The upper story is that the great-grandparents of King David, normal people like you and me, met, married, and lived in Bethlehem where David would be born. And since you may be wondering, that's a cosmic and divine thing, because Ruth and Boaz's great-grandson David is the ancestor of the Messiah, Jesus, God's ultimate savior of the world, who will also be born in Bethlehem. So you see how this goes? Here through our human eyes, we just see the surface, just the tip of the iceberg, so to speak. There's always much, much more going on in the Bible and in our world today, and in fact, in our own lives, than we humans can see on our own. And one of the great joys of reading the Bible is looking for God's upper story. The Bible is transformed from just another morality tale or miracle or parable or prophet or proverb, not just the lower story that is immediately obvious, but God's story, the upper story, the story that teaches us about God and his plan for the world and for us. We see the upper story only through the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. And why is this important? Because if we proclaim to be Christ followers, the family of God, we should know who that God is and what being in that family really means. It's much more than going to church. It's more than praying every day. It's more than trying to be a good person. Deuteronomy 6.5 says that we should love the Lord with our hearts, our minds, I'm sorry, our hearts, our souls, and our strength. And in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus added our minds. That means 
that it's required, not just okay, but required that we think about what God is doing in the Bible and in our lives. We think and we ask questions. Maybe we even complain to God as we strive to see not only the lower story, but the upper story, God's story. And nowhere is that more important than when we talk about our God of justice. For God's version of justice is so much more than what we humans living only in the lower story typically see as justice. And the minor prophets are a great place to begin to understand justice as God sees it. Now, the scripture passages that we read earlier should have given you a sense of what God focuses on when he talks about justice. God's justice includes some of the very things that we cry out for justice about, justice for victims of crimes, compassion and equal opportunities for marginalized groups like widows and orphans and immigrants, and a longing for the world where evil doesn't seem to ride roughshod over good. But God's justice is really much more than these things. Each of the minor prophets we encounter in this section has a word about justice. So we begin first with the minor prophet Micah, who was a contemporary of the great prophet Isaiah, prophesying to both the northern and the southern kingdoms. Remember, we said that was a difference between the majors and the minors. God uses Micah to charge the religious leadership of both kingdoms located in their respective capitals with the responsibility for the sins of the rest of the people. God also speaks about the evil acts of the people and what God plans to do about it. As he says, I have some plans of my own and there'll be no one to stand up for you, no one to speak for you before God and his jury. This sounds like our kind of justice. There's even a reference to a courtroom. But then we get a sense that God is really talking about something much more than justice for victims of crimes. He's focused on the religious leaders of the day. When he says, priests mass, mar mass market their teaching, prophets preach for high fees, all the while posturing and pretending dependence on God. We've got God on our side. He'll protect us from disaster. In other words, there are things about worship, about religion, about the lives of those who proclaim to work for me that are not right. And I will make them right. But true to the prophetic cycle of conviction, call to repentance, consequences, and comfort, Micah also includes words of hope for the coming of the Messiah. In Micah 5, 2, we read, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old from ancient times. We will see this prophecy fulfilled in the birth of Jesus. Then in Micah 6, 8, we read God's expectations of the people. 
He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. This is probably a familiar scripture to you. It's often quoted since it seems to sum up what living a good life is all about. I thought you might be interested in the messages translation as it really hits home with me. There we read, but he's already made it plain how to live, what to do, what God is looking for in men and women. It's quite simple, really. Do what is fair and just to your neighbor. Be compassionate and loyal in your love. And don't take yourself too seriously. Take God seriously. God's upper story comes out again in these last words. Your life, your justice, is not about you, but about your worship of and your relationship with God. Now, we don't know much about our next prophet, Nahum. The book of Nahum focuses on God's punishment of Assyria and the great city of Nineveh. You may remember that God used the Assyrians to bring judgment on the northern kingdom of Israel, but Nahum is reassuring the people that Israel will receive justice as well. So Nahum, like the books of Obadiah and Jonah, focuses on judgment of other nations. To be clear, now this is not justice for Israel. It is God meeting out justice on evil, even though he used these evil people to discipline his own people, Israel. Habakkuk was a contemporary of Jeremiah, and the book of Habakkuk kind of reflects Jeremiah's style. You know, we may remember that we called Jeremiah the complaining prophet. Well, Habakkuk complains to God just as Jeremiah did. We saw that in the scripture we read earlier. Habakkuk cries out to God that anarchy and violence break out, quarrel and fights all over the place, Law and order fall to pieces. Justice is a joke. The wicked have the righteous hamstrung and stand justice on its head. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, a bit like our world right now. But God answers by saying, essentially, hang on. I'm going to take care of this all in due time. Wait for it. It will come out at the perfect time. The message from Habakkuk is one not just for ancient times, but for all times. Even though evil seems to be winning right now, God will prevail. God's justice is worth waiting on, and it will come in the appointed time. Now, the prophet Zephaniah was a relative of good King Josiah. You may remember him from our discussion of the kings, and they were both descendants of the great king, Hezekiah. They were also contemporaries of Jeremiah, like Habakkuk. So again, they are prophesying during the fall of Jerusalem, some very difficult times. From the excerpt 
From Zephaniah, we learn that God is very aware of the attitudes of some people toward him. He says, I'll find and punish those who are sitting it out, fat and lazy, who think, God doesn't do anything good or bad. He isn't involved, so neither are we. But he also sees others saying, seek God, all you quietly disciplined people who live by God's justice. Seek God's right ways. Hmm. It seems that in Sebaniah's time, also just like ours, there was the silent majority, people trying to live lives of justice, love, and humility. For the others, Zephaniah says, get yourselves together. Shape up. You're a nation without a clue about what it wants. Do it before you're blown away like leaves in a windstorm. One thing these scriptures teach us for certain about our God of justice, he means business. He will not allow injustice to continue forever. He has a plan. The last three minor prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, prophesied after the return of the remnant to rebuild first the temple and then the temple wall, the city wall. You may remember this part of the Israel narrative as occurring in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, all three of these prophets encouraged the people during this time to keep their priorities straight and stay focused on the task before them. The book of Haggai is written over a period of four months and a very specific timeline is included. The message is essentially a call to holiness and Haggai's message might be paraphrased paraphrased this way. God called you to rebuild the temple, his place of dwelling. Now you have stopped because of fear and misplaced priorities. Remember that you are God's holy people and do what he has called you to do. In many ways, Zechariah picks up where Haggai left off. Zechariah was a younger contemporary of Haggai, and in terms of size and significance among the minor prophets, The book of Zechariah compares closely with Hosea, the long first book where Hosea marries the prostitute Gomer to symbolize God's love for Israel. Now, Zechariah's prophecy is is important. It consists of eight night visions, many of which are similar to the second half of Daniel and included are also messianic prophecies such as Zechariah 9.9, where we read, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on the colt, the foal of a donkey. We'll visit this one again in a few weeks. Zechariah's prophecies are often included with those of Daniel Ezekiel, and Revelation, as scholars try to understand what will happen in the final days of the world. The book concludes with the assurance that whatever the details are, 
God will ultimately prevail. We can begin to see from Zechariah that God's justice is more than social justice, what we typically think of as justice. That's part of it, yes. God is concerned for the widow and the orphan and the immigrant, how we treat our neighbors. He has always displayed his justice in this way, all the way back to Moses. But it's more than that. Zechariah's visions show that God will ultimately make all things new, make all things right again, make all things whole, and he will do it through the Messiah. And finally, we come to Malachi, the last of the minor prophets and the last book in the Old Testament. The scripture we read earlier came from the final verses of this short book. God again, as he has in many other places, assures the people that justice is coming. As we read, count on it, the day is coming. All the arrogant people who do evil things will be burned up like stove wood. But for you, sunrise, the sun of righteousness will dawn on those who honor my name. Things will be made right. Then the Old Testament concludes with these words, setting the stage for the coming of the Messiah. Remember and keep the law I gave through my servant Moses, but also look ahead. I'm sending Elijah, the prophet, to clear the way for the big day of God. These words from God came around 425 B.C. as the wall around Jerusalem was being completed. That means that about 400 years or so would elapse before the birth of Jesus. Do you remember another gap of about 400 years in the Israelite story? In your Bibles, between Genesis and Exodus, the Israelites were in Egypt for about 400 years before God sent Moses to deliver them. That's the Old Testament salvation story. And now another gap of 400 years before Jesus comes, the New Testament salvation story, our salvation story. Now, biblical and religious scholars have proposed several reasons for God's timing. Some have suggested that the 400-year gap in the Bible story allows time for the coming Messiah to be disassociated from the Hebrew nation. Although Jesus was a Jew, he came as a king for all nations and a savior for all people, not just the Israelites. But his significance as the Jewish Messiah is critical to the upper story, God's story. So I'm not buying this one. A second theory is that the historical events that occurred during the period between the Testaments work together to create a political and cultural climate conducive to the creation of a new religion. The Romans prided themselves on being a free religion society. They were very focused on their pantheon of gods, allowing citizens and slaves alike to worship any gods of their choosing, as long as that worship did not conflict with allegiance to Rome. 
But Jesus came to complete the old covenant God made with Israel, not to replace it with a new religion. So I'm not buying this one either. What is significant, I believe, during this time is that a common language, Greek, became the language of the Roman Empire and that the Romans were builders, which meant they created a highway system throughout the Mediterranean and Asia Minor. These roads were invaluable to the spread of the gospel as carried by Paul, Silas, Barnaby, Apollos, Priscilla, Aquila, Phoebe, and Timothy. This intertestament period, while notably blank in most Protestant Bibles, was not a silent period either. The writing of this period, referred to as the Apocrypha or hidden writing, is not accepted as divinely inspired scripture by many believers. It was, however, included in most Bibles from AD 382 through the first King James Bible in 1611. But most Protestant versions dropped the apocryphal writings by 1629, although they are still included in the Roman Catholic and Greek Orthodox versions, but they're not part of the Hebrew scriptures. Now, in addition to the rise of the Roman Empire and the writings of the Apocrypha, significant changes were happening within the Jewish religion during this time. During the exile, the Jewish people were relocated throughout the Mediterranean. This diaspora meant that even after the rebuilding of the temple during the restoration, many people could no longer worship at the temple in Jerusalem. They just couldn't get there from where they were. So as a result, local synagogues emerged with rabbis or teachers as leaders. Now, this also led to written interpretations of the law and less emphasis on the priesthood, which only made the priests in Jerusalem, and especially the high priest, more paranoid about losing their power, which we will see when Jesus comes. During this period, Jewish sects also arose, formed along political and cultural and religious lines. The Pharisees were one of these sects. They became the keepers of the oral traditions, which they considered the law. The Sadducees rejected the whole idea of um, resurrection, and they rejected the oral tradition and adopted more of a Hellenistic or a Greek-influenced practice, which also included re, uh, for, forsaking the belief in any resurrection from the dead. The Essenes were monk-like people, and they often lived in the deserts, and they removed themselves from any kind of cultural influences. Now, many scholars believe the Essenes were the keepers of the documents discovered as the Dead Sea Scrolls. The zealots were militaristic, believing that the only way to get out from under Rome's rule was through a violent revolt. Now, it was from the zealots that many messiahs arose during this period. And these would-be leaders, these would-be messiahs, typically gathered followers for a while, but were ultimately killed by Rome. Now, that doesn't sound all that unfamiliar. You can see how this history 
might cause some who witnessed Jesus's crucifixion to wonder if he hadn't just been one of these other messiahs. The Herodians were Jews who sought to ingratiate themselves to Rome, typically through the Judean governor, Herod, and that's how they got their name. We might think of them as the, you know, if you can't beat them, join them sect. And finally, we can't forget the Samaritans. The Samaritans lived in Samaria, which was no longer just the capital city of the northern kingdom, but a complete area north of Jerusalem. And Samaritan, the Samaritans practiced the blended religion that had evolved after Assyria had conquered the northern kingdom around 722 BC. If you remember, they brought in other people and all of that blended together, kind of created this hybrid religion. Uh, so the Samaritans were despised for this by the religious leaders in Jerusalem. Uh, they didn't come to Jerusalem to worship, and so that didn't set well. Uh, most faithful Jews in first century Palestine would go out of their way to avoid going through Samaria or having anything to do with the Samaritan, which made Jesus's affection for them all the more radical. So we've been talking today about our God of justice. At its simplest, the word justice means simply putting things right. And in truth, since sin entered God's perfect world way back in Genesis 3, that's what the story of the Bible has been all about, putting things right, making right a world that has gone wrong, making whole a world that is broken. That is God's upper story, justifying, making right again what is wrong, this world of sin. Now in the lower story, our human perspective, What's wrong presents itself as things like unfairness to marginalized people, racism, genocide, crime, bad people doing bad things, often to good people. We hear a lot of these days about justice for this person or that person. But most of the time, this justice, the lower story justice, is really vengeance assigning blame, making sure someone pays for the hurt they've caused. In the fall of 2020 in Fort Worth, Texas, a man was arrested for brutally raping and killing Carla Walker, a 17-year-old girl headed home from a Valentine's Day dance way back in 1974. For 46 years, Carla's family had waited for justice. When the man was arrested, they said that they forgive the man and asked for prayers for his family. But they were quick to add that they still expected to see justice done. They can forgive, which sounds a lot like grace, but they still want justice. And yet, the family of Carla Walker 
Like any parent who has lost a child to a random act of violence or to malpractice by a doctor or to a drunk driver, we'll also be quick to say that no amount of the world's justice will bring their child back. No amount of vengeance or payback can make things right again. No amount of lower story justice can make their world whole. Back in Genesis, we talked about justice, mercy, and grace. We said that in the lower story here on earth, justice is seen as the opposite of mercy and grace. It's impossible to have justice and mercy, justice and grace. But in the upper story, God's story, nothing is impossible. And in fact, we will soon see that our God of justice justifies the world's sin, makes the broken world whole again, makes you and me whole again through the opposite of justice. That's right. Only through our God for whom all things are possible could justice be brought about through grace. In our next episode, we will meet the ultimate narrative of the upper story. The one through whom this justice and grace come. The one who makes you and me whole again. Our Savior Jesus. Only God can bring that kind of justice to our broken world. This is God's story for your life.